Strong over thin, nutrition over calories. That's what I want to teach the younger generation. That's what you need to focus on. Weight loss, a youthful appearance, bone density, a muscular physique, brain function, hair, skin, joint pain, your moods, risk of disease, your vitality, all of these things are controlled by your hormones. Now hold up youngins, I'm talking to you. If you are a woman over age 35, you need to hear this message today. I mean, we all wanna look great, we all wanna feel great, we all wanna avoid or lose the belly fat. None of us wanna die of heart disease or Alzheimer's and that's why you've gotta hear this message. Despite what your mom or your doctor might have told you about your options, today we are busting open a mountain of menopausal myths and you'll learn why some of the most shockingly important information is being withheld from women by conventional medical providers and the media. Today, we're gonna to explore some groundbreaking new studies and debunk some old junky science that probably has you in the dark and seriously confused when it comes to your own hormone health. We're doing that today with renowned hormone expert, Dr. Mary Claire Haver. Dr. Mary Claire Haver has been a guest of The Shaleen Show before. We love having her back. I discovered her during the pandemic. Like most people, I was scrolling TikTok. And at that time, I was perimenopausal and kind of trying to navigate the roller coaster that is perimenopause. And I discovered some of her videos and was like, who is this woman? She's brilliant. I, of course, discovered that she was an OBGYN practicing in the state of Houston, Texas. She is a very accomplished physician treating thousands and thousands of women in her clinic. She's a board certified OBGYN. She's an educator. She's the founder of the Galveston Diet. She's been married for over 25 years, has two grown daughters. And what I love about this woman is she is not only a medical doctor, but she's also certified in menopause. Certified in menopause. Did you know that the average medical student gets about six hours worth of training on perimenopause and menopausal women? She's also certified in culinary medicine and specializes in medical nutrition. I mean, could you ask for more? Today, we're answering all of your questions and more. I have a little favor before I invite her onto the show. It is, will you please send this episode to any woman you know who's approaching age 35 or who's 35 and older? I don't care if she's 60 years old or 70 years old or 42 years old, like every woman over the age of 35 deserves the truth. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. We've got so much to talk about. Thank you for coming back to the show. People love you. Thank you for having me. My followers love you, so <laughs> they can't wait to see this. Well, you know, you tell it like it is and people like that. And I think especially for women, it's so nice to have someone who we know is out there like advocating for us. And especially from the side of the fence that you're on, like being a medical doctor, I think sometimes we feel like we're underrepresented, that the studies don't ever take us into consideration, that we're being lied to, that the information is being withheld from us. So it's nice to have someone like you to follow on all the social media platforms, to pick up one of your books, and which we'll talk about in a little bit. But can I just like jump right in? And the first question I'm going to ask you is, when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, there's so much I think still fear around it. And a lot of women that I hear from say, I'm afraid to do it. I don't want to do it. My mother didn't do it. And also I have a family member who had breast cancer. So therefore, I don't think I'm a candidate. So to those women, what do you say? Your fear is based and is real, okay, based on what the prevailing information has been probably the last 20 years. There is a reason you're feeling this fear. Now let's talk about why that information was put out there and what it actually means today and what we've learned. So 
it was one study. So prior to the Women's Health Initiative, which is the study that led to the fear-based thought processes around HRT, almost every woman was offered hormone replacement therapy prior to 2002, once she became menopausal. Yes, it was standard therapy. There had not been a randomized control study to show the benefits for heart disease and you know possible Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera. But the observational studies, meaning let's look back at all these women who were taking hormones for their hot flashes and see how many of them, and it looks like they're having less heart disease. So we've, we knew that for a long period of time. Compound that with, for years, women in general were excluded, women of reproductive age were excluded from most medical studies because we were hormonal and they felt like they would get inaccurate results. Yeah, too many variables for the, for the scientists. And that led to, you know, all these dosing, especially cardiovascular medicines, the statins, a lot of the, you know, meds were never really tested on women and certainly not on women in menopause or reproductive age. So the WHI, they had a female director of the National Institutes of Health for the first time. So this is 1998. And she gets this initiative to, we are going to have the first randomized controlled study. So we're going to have placebo versus medication. And they picked Premarin and Prempro, which were the two most commonly prescribed forms of hormone therapy at the time. And they got some funding, of course, from, from the pharmaceutical company to test these two meds versus placebo and see if it really did help a woman prevent cardiovascular disease. That was the aim of the study. So women don't get heart disease typically until they're in their 70s or 80s. We're 20 years behind men. Like we catch up quickly, but estrogen protects us in our premenopausal years. So the average age of the women included in the study was 63 years old. And they were starting them on hormone therapy to see if they developed heart disease or not. So for a lot of them, this was like 10 years after they've entered into menopause. Way more than 10 years, yes. Wow. And so that's the first problem with the study. It was much older than the typical woman ever would have been starting hormone replacement therapy. And so what they found was there was no benefit to heart disease. And they did find a slightly increased risk of heart disease only in the PremPro arm. Okay. So, but when you look at absolute risk versus, and this was in the older patients. So, they and then so they stopped giving the Primpro arm Primpro and said you guys are getting breast cancer at too high of a rate to make you know to continue the study, and then the Primarin only arm, the estrogen only arm kept going. So the women who are on estrogen only had a lower increased risk of breast cancer, and those that were diagnosed with breast cancer got had a higher chance of survival. Okay, the Primpro arm it went from four out of a thousand women per year, which is baseline, that is the average risk of breast cancer, to five out of a thousand women per year, which is a 25% relative risk increase, but it's the absolute risk is tiny. So, and another thing about hormone therapy, there is not another medication that is gatekept from women or from, you know, nothing is gatekept from men. No man is told you cannot have this, anything. Here are your risks, here are your benefits, Let's make a decision. Do you want this med or not? But for some reason, we as a gender are told, you can't have this. It's, I don't believe in this, like it's Santa Claus. And so the, the fear of it came from the only thing that was reported in the newspapers, because it sold the newspapers, was estrogen causes breast cancer. Okay? The estrogen-only arm did not have an increased risk. 
It was only the estrogen and, pro- and it was a very specific progestin. Wow. It was medroxyprogesterone acetate. Provera is the parent brand name. MPA is what we call it medicine. I never prescribe it. Like people like me, we do not prescribe MPA because of the WHI study. So when the French looked at 80,000 women and they went back and stratified breast cancer risk based on the type of progestogen that they were given, progesterone, which is the body identical one versus all the synthetics, progesterone, which is what your ovaries make, did not have an increased risk. It had the lowest association with breast cancer. So these are the things I talk to my patients about. If she still chooses not to pursue hormone replacement therapy, your body, your choice. But I want you to make that decision based on accurate modern information and not fear-mongering from a blown-out-of-proportion study 23 years ago. So maybe we should probably walk this back a little bit. I think there's a lot of women, just based on the questions that I got when I mentioned that you're coming back on the show, I was shocked at how many women don't know the difference between perimenopause and menopause, wondered if there was actually a test that you could take. So let's start there and talk about, first of all, what are the definitions of the two and symptoms of each? Yeah. And I get a lot of questions about postmenopause. Like you never talk about yeah. postmenopause. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, I think we're trapped in nomenclature here. So we have normal reproductive function. You're living your best life. You're having a period once a month. Now, this is not for our PCOs, girlies. That's 10% of your audience knows who they are. Okay. But you know, for 90% of us, regular cycles pretty much once a month unless we're pregnant or suppressing for whatever reason. And going along our day, our periods aren't bugging us too bad. We're living our best lives. We're able to function and do all the things, whether we're on our periods or not. And then that's pre-menopause, okay? Perimenopause means around. Peri means around. So it's the time between menopause is one day in your life. It is defined as one day after your last menstrual period. So if you're over the age of 45 and you have not had a period for a year, you're menopausal. I don't need blood work to confirm that. That's what it is. So everything after that, from that last period until death, is postmenopausal. So when I'm talking menopause, menopausal, that's what I'm talking about at that time frame. Perry is the transition between rocking your best life and your period stopping. And that period is marked by an estrogen decline, but it's not a steady state. It is a roller coaster of rock and roll up and down. And it is, for some of us, (laughs) none of us knew it was coming or that what hit us. You know, I gaslit myself. This was my job. I was an OB-GYN physician and I could not diagnose my own perimenopause. Wow. Yeah. We are, we're, you know why? Because we're conditioned to blame ourselves. We've been yeah. told that we're dieting wrong, we're eating wrong, we're not exercising the right way, we're not sleeping the right way. Everything we're doing is wrong. So so peri is transition. So how about testing? How do we know these things? So say you've had an IUD or a hysterectomy or some reason where you don't have periods, okay? How do you know? How do you know? That's where the blood work could come in and be helpful. You know, if you're symptomatic, then... We can check an FSH or an est- and or estradiol level and have, have a pretty good idea. Yes, you're done. Your ovaries have shut down. They're not coming back to life, okay? Perimenopause, because the hormones fluctuate so much on a daily basis, there is not a good blood, urine, or saliva test that has shown to be consistently able to diagnose perimenopause. Perimenopause is a diagnosis made on clinical symptoms excluding out other similar causes. So when a patient comes to me in Perry and she's like, I've got this, 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 okay? First of all, I go, I believe you. (sighs) Yes, you do. 
I absolutely believe you. And they start crying immediately. Yeah. That's why I have an hour long new patient visit. And so then I say, okay, let's start talking about treatment options. We're like, what? <laughs> so let's start treatment. Now, blood work I do get. I check a blood count, a complete metabolic panel. I'm checking autoimmune levels. If, if she has X, Y, and Z symptom, I'm checking for nutritional deficiencies. I'm checking for ferritin and iron levels. You know, I want to make sure I'm not missing something that is running alongside this perimenopause that we need to treat. But rarely am I doing a full hormone panel for this young woman. I know she's in perimenopause. I believe her. But so you're not doing a panel to see like where her levels are because you know they're going to fluctuate so much. Very interesting. Okay. So therefore, if a woman is perimenopausal, is that a time when she would start doing hormone supplementation? Yeah, she could. Now, how do we start that? The yeah. biggest difference, and I saw that as one of the questions coming out, how, what's the difference between hormone pill, you know, horm- birth control pills and hormone therapy? Yeah. Not much, okay? You know, estrogen and progesterone is the core. Estrogen is the core of menopause hormone therapy. Okay. Birth control pills were designed to suppress ovulation so you don't get pregnant. That's what they were built for, okay? We use them for a lot of things though. We use them for heavy periods, acne, cramps. You know, we do a lot with that. Right. Menopause hormone therapy was meant to stop hot flashes. That's what it was built for. You know, now we know it also protects against all these other things. And we'll talk about that. The biggest difference between the two is dosage. Okay. Okay. We need much higher doses to suppress ovulation than we do to support a menopausal woman. Okay. That's the biggest, biggest difference between the two. And so say a perimenopausal patient comes in and her world is being rocked and she also is having horrific acne or really, really bad cramps. And we've ruled out polyps and fibroids. And, you know, we, we know that it's pure perimenopause causing her cycles to drive her insane. I might consider the doses in a birth control pill because I want to suppress her ovulation because it will also take care of those other problems. So it's mm. kind of like a two in one. Yeah. Okay. Whereas if she's closer to full menopause, where her periods are starting to space out and they're not super heavy, they're not driving her crazy, she just needs to sleep and her get these hot flashes under control and she's interested in the long-term health benefits. I might just start putting her in menopause hormone therapy at a higher dose, you know, because she's still cycling a little bit to see if that's enough to get her under control. It's trial and error. I go based on symptoms, not blood work. I listen to the patient. I'm constantly in communication with her. Mm-hmm. And what works for her for a year in two years, we may need to change the dose again, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. I've been testing every six months since age 45. Is that overkill? You know, if you've got the money and you don't mind it and it's, like you're curious, yeah. okay, it's okay. fine. But I, I have X amount of, do- you know, these patients are desperate. Sure. And, and I'm trying to give them the most economical, medically sound case. If she's asking for testing, I'll do it. If she has a mind paying for it, you know, if insurance won't cover it. And what, what about the woman who is without symptoms? Like, so she knows she's uh, perimenopausal just based on her age and you know, maybe some inconsistency is in when she gets her cycle. Uh, so she knows she's perimenopausal, but she doesn't have any symptoms per se. Would you recommend she test? If I'm considering hormone therapy, so so the question is like around hormone therapy, there's not a blood test that's going to tell me. Now, there's some experimentation being done with, it's used in fertility a lot, the malarian hormone testing. And so, but there's not great data. To say, it'll tell you it, how what your fertility, like how likely you are to have a baby. And some of them can tell you if your menopause is probably within two years. But 
if she's asymptomatic, I start talking about what could hormone therapy do for you health-wise long-term. Even though it's you don't have hot flashes and you feel really good, you could have a lower risk of depression. You're definitely going to have stronger bones, you know. You're definitely going to decrease your risk of dementia if you start early. Okay, we have windows of opportunity here. And we're definitely going to protect your vagina, uterus, and bladder. Mm. Uh, we're sorry, yeah, vaginal wall, genitalia, and the bladder. So yeah. from GSM, general urinary syndrome of menopause. Okay, I know you've seen this ad on TV. It is so memorable. It's a woman basically who's telling you how to use a deodorant stick in your nether regions, if you know what I mean. And when you watch this ad, you won't forget it because you feel like you're watching like an Instagram or a TikTok. I love organic ads, by the way, basically user-generated content. It was enough to inspire me to check out Lumi. Now, Lumi is a company that makes a whole body deodorant. It just makes sense. Like, I don't sweat under my arms. I don't know if you do. My thing is, I wanted a deodorant that was safe. And Lumi was created by an OBGYN who discovered by doing clinical testing that it's not the vagina, it's not necessarily your underarms that make people smell, it's an imbalance in your pH levels. So she created this very uniquely formulated pH balanced deodorant that's aluminum free, it's safe to use on your skin, and it's clinically proven to help you control odor, are you ready for this, for up to 72 hours. And I can tell you from personal experience that 72 hours claim is legit. Personally, I would recommend you check out the starter pack and they've got a great deal for listeners of The Shaleen Show. You get $5 off the starter pack when you use code Shaleen and you go to lumideodorant.com. So you can use it just about anywhere to help fight odor. And let's face it, if you live in your yoga tights all day, if you marinate in them, this is just a good idea. And remember, as a new customer to Lumi, you get $5 off your starter pack when you use code Chalene and go to lumideodorant.com. I can't wait to hear what you think about this stuff. I think you're going to love it. Again, it's lumideodorant.com and don't forget to use code Chalene. If you start early, okay, we have windows of opportunity here. And we're definitely going to protect your vagina, uterus, and bladder. Mm. Uh, we're sorry, yeah, vaginal wall, genitalia, and the bladder. So yeah. from GSM, general urinary syndrome of menopause. Wasn't there a study that came out last summer that tended to change the narrative with regard to when women should start considering hormone replacement therapy? And the younger, the better, and obviously a reassessing the estrogen component. So looking, this is actually good WHI data. So as they stratified based on when the women start, if, even though the average age was 62, we had younger patients in the study. So they stratified all these things by age. And here's what we know. The shorter your body is without estrogen, the healthier you tend to be. The lower risk of cardiovascular disease, the lower risk of stroke, the lower risk of most chronic diseases. Okay? And so... The average age of menopause is about 51. And when they started looking at the numbers, somewhere around 10 years without estrogen, 10 years without you know therapy, or, or age 60, if you do the math, right, women had a benefit for decreasing their risk of cardiovascular disease. Estrogen is protective. Mm -hmm. It's better at stopping a disease from getting started 
mm-hmm. rather than fixing it once you're there. So the older women who already had coronary artery disease, who were then given estrogen on top of that, actually did not get better and actually got worse. So when I have a patient who comes to me over the age of 60, she's been menopausal for 10 or plus years, but she's still hot flashing or symptomatic brain fog, all the things, or her bones, you know, like she's got osteopenia and we're fighting, fighting, fighting to protect her. I'll get a calcium cardiac score. We're going a deep dive on her lipids, you know, to see, do you have some pre-existing coronary artery disease? If that calcium cardiac score is negative, I feel very comfortable giving this older patient and offering her hormone therapy, knowing that she doesn't have, you know, she's got clean arteries, I'm not going to exacerbate that disease, and then she can get the rest of the benefits. What other symptoms was she experience improvements in, aside from the preventive disease effect? Okay, so that's a great question. In this, this new book I'm writing, I do a deep dive, I go organ system by organ system. So I can't promise her, but a lot of patients are having improvements in, you know, start from top to bottom, brain fog, asthma, autoimmune disease, dental issues, thyroid disorders, (laughs) palpitations, gut microbiome, gut health, absorption, osteopenia, osteoporosis, muscle and joint pain. This is a huge one. So, I mean, there is not an organ, and I'm probably forgetting some. There's a lot. So there's really not an organ system that is not affected. The only one I could find where HRT would make something worse was reflux. So I always want a patient who, and that seems to be just the oral form of estrogen. If we switch to a transdermal, it's likely not going to affect her. Is that anecdotal with your practice or is that something that has been studied? So when I went through the gastrointestinal research, there was clear like women who have GERD, and this is with oral estrogen, tend to have worsening GERD. Mm-hmm. reflux, gastrointestinal, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease. That's what GERD is. But almost everything else, it's, it's shocking how much you can get better, how many organ systems can be improved. And other data showing women who happen to be given hormone therapy early in this cause have a lower chance of developing some of these diseases. Do you see a significant difference in the experience women have making the transition from perimenopause to menopause in your practice who are starting earlier on hormone replacement therapy? Yes. So especially in mental health at least my clinical, you know, so this is just my several thousand patients. Um, But we we got decent data and research to back this up. If a woman starts hormone support or hormone therapy, or I I don't want to say replacement, it's going out of fashion. Mm, I like it. I didn't know that. So the trend is now to say hormone support? Hormone support or hormone therapy or menopause, menopause hormone therapy. Got it. So replacement kind of like I don't know. There's all nomenclature. If I'm giving somebody hormones early, like pre-perimenopausal, she has a much lower chance of having exacerbation of her depression from menopause or new onset mental health disorders. So it's very, very, very protective in the brain. Also, osteoporosis and visceral fat, for sure. I mean, we know it's preventative for osteoporosis. Gosh, and visceral fat, there's got to be a correlation between visceral fat and depression. Right. I mean, like no, no one's in a good mood when your pants don't fit. It all feeds into each other. Yeah. You know, it's like the same thing that fix, you know, that decrease your risk of heart disease, decrease your risk of dementia, decrease your risk of visceral fat, you know? And so, and hormone therapy is one of the things in that toolkit. What percentage, if there is such a thing, how much of an impact do our genetics 
my mom's experience in menopause impact my own experience in menopause? Like, so if my mom had a horrible time, can I expect to have the same? How much can that be mitigated by lifestyle, obviously doing hormone support, exercise, like all the things? We know that women who, now these are patterns of behavior. I wish I could tell you if you do one thing or two things or take the supplement, you're going to have a much better course. But women who tend to be in the blue zone, women who tend to eat Mediterranean, women who tend to have regular cardiovascular exercise, eat lots of fiber, you know, all the things we talk about all the time, I, at least I do, tend to have lower, like obvious symptoms. You know, they sleep better, they have lower hot flashes, etc. Now that being said, you can be absolute perfection in your nutrition mm. and diet and exercise and have the worst hot flashes of your life. So it's, wow. it's hard. It's all about trending and patterns but it's not definitely a one-to-one -one correlation. Okay, yeah. I think that's gonna be reassuring for some people to hear. I discovered a bar that I'm so excited about, you guys. First of all, I had heard that Maria Shriver and her son, Patrick Schwarzenegger, were in the process with neuroscientists developing a bar that was specifically formulated to have all the supplements that you really need for brain function. Like These are the supplements that we you know, if you've done any research on how to prevent Alzheimer's and lifestyle changes, these are the most important supplements to, to have. Anyways, I heard that they were developing this protein bar. I definitely wanted to try it, even though I'm always a little skeptical. I just had in the past been kind of turned off by the taste of protein bars. So I had them ship them to me. I tasted them. I am not kidding. I'm not even exaggerating. You guys, these are the best freaking protein bars I've ever had. I'm not even joking. And this is the part that's going to blow your mind. They have less than one gram of sugar, less than 160 calories. Would you like to eat a delicious bar that is chocolatey and peanut buttery and crunchy? Um, yes. And proceeds go to the women's Alzheimer's movement at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, triple yes. Am obsessed with this bar. But they've got like six other flavors. They've got cookie dough, peanut butter crunch, chocolate crunch, blueberry almond crunch, lemon white chocolate crunch. That's the one I'm going to try next. Listen, we're all busy. You're on the go. You're going to the gym or you're just trying to like live your best life. You're in your car and you're thinking about going through a drive-thru. No, don't do it. Keep a mosh bar in your car. Mosh protein bars will keep your body fit and fueled and feeling good. And I might add, it's a great way to support the show and Alzheimer's research. I am so proud to have them as a sponsor. So please take advantage of your 20% off plus free shipping. Go to moshlife.com, order their six count trial pack. You'll get 20% off plus free shipping on that six count trial pack. That pack includes all the flavors and they are delish. Mosh is spelled M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E, moshlife.com forward slash lean for your 20% off. I think that's going to be reassuring for some people to hear. I know that for myself personally, when I talk about my own experience, which has been, I'm mean, not a breeze, but certainly way easier than a lot of the people who are listeners and people in my audience who've shared their own experience, there's almost like this anger, you know, like, well, you just wait, it's coming, Missy. You know, like there's this kind of like people are kind of angry with me that it hasn't been as horrible as I anticipated it being. Like we just really kind of villainize this idea 
of menopause where it's going to be horrible and you're going to be angry and overweight and you're going to look like a man and you're going to be depressed and have constant hot flashes and your life is over. And, you know, and it just wasn't my experience. Like my experience, I have felt absolutely amazing throughout it. And I know a lot of it has to do with what I did prior to being perimenopausal and then the lifestyle choices and obviously doing hormone support and exercise and sleep and all the supplements, all those things. But yet also, I don't know how much of that was genetics. We don't either. You know, again, yeah. lack of research, lack of funding, <laughs> lack of studies. And I, and I want to preface this. For probably 20 years, I was a horrible menopause provider. And I'll, I'll be oh, completely really? honest with you. Wow. I relied on the training that I got in medical school and residency to govern how I treated a menopausal woman and thought I was fine. I made A's on all the tests. I blew mm. the top off of the boards. Wow. I passed my orals with flying colors. And I got about six hours of lectures on menopause in four years of training. And I'm not exaggerating. Is that typical for most medical doctors? Oh, yeah, that's totally typical. And then I became a program director. I taught medical students and residents. I was in charge of the curriculum as dictated by the American Board of OB-GYN. It's like, meh. So we have OBGYN, right? So we have obstetrics, which is probably 50 to 60% depending on the program. Okay, so that's getting pregnant, staying pregnant, delivering the baby, boom. Okay. Okay, everything else gets shoved into gynecology. Ectopic pregnancies, fertility, pediatric gynecology, Oncology, the cervical cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, all of that, all important stuff. And menopause is this little tiny sliver left over at the end. And when you think about it, we spend a third of our lives, if we're lucky, I mean, menopause is not optional, okay? And we spend a third of our lives in menopause and we can intervene and do just as much as we can in pregnancy, yet we're getting a sliver of the training. And when you look at research, so women's health gets the shot for research dollars. Okay, it's, it's despicable. But then when you look inside of women's health, if you just go to PubMed, which is where we have research articles that are peer-derived and, you know, the, the best of the best, and you just type in the word pregnancy, 1.1 million articles come up right now, okay? You type in the word menopause and 94,000 articles come up, 10 to 1. Wow. So we get a sliver of the total research dollars for all people. And then we get a little 10% of that going, all the brain power, the research. The, so it's a big shift, of course, correct. And so I had to lean outside of my training, find like minds, go to these conferences, get menopause certified in order to, and I realized, I mean, I want to apologize to every patient I tried to take care of. Wow. For, you know, 15, 20 years. When we know better, we do better. I want to ask this on behalf of so many of the women I know, and they're frustrated because they've gone to their doctor and been given information or given the runaround. They know that they're not getting the kind of treatment that they'd like. Mm -hmm. What suggestions do you have for them or resources sure. perhaps to find a perhaps a doctor who's menopause certified or specializes or, or has a level of knowledge and care in this area? Exactly. And, you know, one your doctor who delivered your babies and has taken great care of you may not be a great menopause provider. And don't blame them. They're busy. They're yeah. under tremendous amounts of pressure. They have 15 minutes to see a patient. And menopause is hard. You know, untangling all these symptoms. Is this hypothyroidism? Is it autoimmune disease? Is it menopause? Is a lot of work. And we're not really paid to do that. 
Okay. Yeah. We're paid to do surgeries and do procedures. And it's just the system is set up to fail the menopausal woman. So what can you do? Number one, the menopause society, menopause.org has a list of certified providers on their website. I can't promise you they're fantastic, but at least it's a start. Number two, on my website, which is galvestondiet.com, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, we have referred physicians. Now, these are personal testimonials my followers wrote for great mm -hmm. menopause doctors. Again, when we just make sure they're practicing and have a phone number, let you read their stuff and go find them. Number three, I have resources on my website and our blogs, how to advocate yourself yourself at your menopause provider. I have the articles to print out and hand to the doctor to educate them. I have the latest menopause society guidelines. I have the data from the American Heart Association saying it does not decrease, you know, increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. So, and you can just take those to go advocate for yourself. I have a tremendous amount of free education all over my website, all about this. And call ahead, ask to speak to the nurse. Mm. Ask them if they give, if they even will have a conversation with you. If you decide after understanding the risks and benefits for you that this is not for you, fine, but you deserve the conversation. What would you say to that person who has been told by their provider, uh, you're not a candidate, but they want a second opinion? Sure. Again, try to find one of those resources. Ask your friends. A lot of people are told, well, I have a history of blood clots or I have a, a, a high risk for clotting disorder. Transdermal estrogen does not increase your risk of blood clots, only oral. So, you know, vaginal estrogen, everyone can take, even if you have a blood clot right now, even if you have breast cancer, vaginal estrogen to treat vaginal atrophy is safe for everyone. All types of breast cancer? All types. You can wow. use vaginal estrogen. It is not high enough of a dose to be systemically absorbed. It stays where it stays put. Wow. Okay, that's wild. And I know there's still going to be those women out there who are not a candidate. And I want to talk, you know, it's really important for me to have you back on because I, you do a great job of educating your public about lifestyle and proper supplementation and the diet, like how much your diet impacts your hormones. So this is going to apply to any woman who's trying to mitigate symptoms, whether she's perimenopausal or menopausal. This is for the woman who is doing hormone replacement or sorry, hormone support. Or not. Yeah. Or not. So these are the kinds of things that are going to help all women in terms of hormone balance. So what are some of the most important things we need to look at? Sure. So in, in forms of sex hormones, so we're talking about your estrogen, your progesterone, and your testosterone. Those are the mm -hmm. three main, or androgens, estrogens, and progestogens. So we have things that kind of act like those in the body where, like, for example, estrogens, we have phytoestrogens, which are plant-based products that weakly bind to the estrogen receptor and may provide some relief. And so these are things like soy, a lot of fruits and veggies, broccoli, chia seeds, nuts, you know, lots of plant-based products that have these chemicals in them that act a lot like estrogen in the body and can relieve symptoms in some people. Ashwagandha is one of them. They don't work for everyone. The Menopause Society does not recommend them as first-line therapy, but they're usually not harmful. I mean, you definitely want to eat a plant-rich diet. It doesn't have to be 100% yeah. plant-based, but if that's not your, you know, the majority of your plate should be a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned on the show that when I went to go get my nails done, the nail tech was like, when did you have these done? Because it looks like they haven't grown out at all. Like I, I didn't need a fill. Also, I was able to go like almost seven weeks before getting my hair highlighted because my hair hadn't grown. And I'm like, what is different? I realized what it was. 
I had stopped taking my collagen because we were traveling and I forgot. Well, thanks to my friends at Organifi who were listening to the show, my problem is solved. They sent me my favorite unflavored collagen. Now, the reason why I use an unflavored collagen powder is because I mix it in with my water and my other supplements. It has no flavor. And that's how I make sure that I get enough collagen to get my hair growing and my nails growing again. That's the only thing I've done different in the last whatever, seven or eight weeks. What is collagen? It's the most abundant protein in our body. Everyone makes it. We should be making it. You need it for your blood vessels, your muscles. You need it for hair growth. You need it for nails. You need it to have stronger bones. But collagen literally is the glue that holds all of our parts together. And it's something that is going to improve your gut health. It helps your metabolism. It helps you to build muscle. It helps your cardiovascular health. And most of us are not getting enough. So if you use an unflavored collagen powder, you can mix in your morning coffee. It literally doesn't change the taste at all. You can put it in your smoothie. You can put it in your water. You can put it in your yogurt. You can put it in just about anything. It literally has no taste. And Organifi only uses real food ingredients. As a listener of the show, you get 20% off. I want you to try their collagen. Go to Organifi.com forward slash Shaleen and then enter code Shaleen for your 20% off. Again, that's Organifi.com forward slash Shaleen. I mean, you definitely want to eat a plant-rich diet. It doesn't have to be yeah. 100% plant-based, but if that's not your, you know, the majority of your plate should be fruits and veggies. You find that a lot of women that are at your clinic believe that soy is a no-no harmful yeah yeah so i mean that's just been push 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 on social media so much because it's a phytoestrogen there's not a single study to document it increases risk of any cancer as a matter of fact i think if you look in japan where they eat a diet tremendously high in soy because tofu and edamame and all those things that's soybeans and they have some of the lowest risk of breast cancer in the world and so you know there's just it makes no sense now you want to get things as close to the ground as possible and so i think you can overdo any nutrient and the more variety we have in our diets from natural sources the healthier you're going to be what are your thoughts on dietary percentages. So for example, do you think as women begin to age that they need to reduce their carbohydrate intake, thoughts on intermittent fasting, those sorts of things? So I'm a big fan of fasting. It's not for everyone. It's something I practice daily. I try to teach my students and my patients how to do it. There's multiple ways to do it. But again, if it triggers an eating disorder or hypoglycemia, you know, it may not be for you. Mm-hmm. But as far as autophagy and lowering inflammation, it really seems to have, there, se- there seems to be something there, okay. especially in the menopausal woman. So that's one thing. But it's tough. You really have to focus on getting enough protein intake. Yes. So when I first wrote the Galveston diet, if I, you know, we're working on a second edition and I'm, I'm going to recommend more protein than I had before. When you say you are going to recommend more, can you give us a percentage that you might? Sure. You know, yeah. Bring? So at least 25% okay. minimum as far as your total caloric intake. So, but again, that gets a little tricky. So I like to look at protein as based on your ideal weight. So, you know, if you're, if you're obese, we need to back it up a little bit, but like most women know what's your ideal weight. Mm-hmm. What were you, what did you weigh at 25? You know, mm-hmm. so what is always your, what's been your goal weight forever? So let's work with that. <laughs> We're going to divide it by 2.2 to get kilograms. And we want to get 1.3 to 1.6. And I'll tell you why. I know FDA right now is recommending 0.8, but they're not looking at women in perimenopause and menopause. They're not mm-hmm. considering sarcopenia. They're not right. considering muscle mass loss with age and getting you away from that threshold of losing function. 
And in the WHI, the women who had 1.3 grams per day naturally in their diet, they weren't on diets, they just like tracked and, and they went back and saw, huh, the women who were eating 1.3 grams of protein per day, grams per kilogram of body weight, had 34% lower fragility scores as they aged. Wow. And the women who had 1.6 had the highest muscle mass. So that's where I'm setting my patients because I have a body scanner. I'm measuring muscle mass and da da da. Yeah. And the ones who are bordering sarcopenia, they're really starting to, you know, they're really coming in low on their muscle mass. I'm yeah. pushing them to 1.6. But if they look good and they've got great muscle, I'm trying to hit 1.3. Okay, I'm going to interrupt right here and just mentioned that I did a previous episode where I talked about the importance of protein and some really simplified ways for you to track it. I did that episode earlier this week. If you didn't catch it, please, I recommend right now that you look at the description below this episode and you'll see that I've linked to it. You can check this video out. You're going to see very visual representations of like the amount of protein that you need to be consuming, like what it looks like. It's a really super simplified approach to this. It's how I've been able to lose more than 10% body fat and actually gained more muscle while losing body fat after being postmenopausal. So it is possible. It's such a simplified way. Like people are mad that it's so simple. Like all the fitness folks are a little mad that I'm saying this, but I'm telling you, if you're annoyed by the whole tracking and the mathematics that's involved in figuring out how much protein you need, go check out this episode. What supplements do we need to look at when it comes to bone density and osteoporosis? Oh, thank you for asking. Okay. I love this. So 80% of my patients are deficient in vitamin D. That is something that is going to help multiple organ systems across the board. Get your vitamin D levels checked. Put your foot down. Find a lab somewhere. Know where you are. You should be supplementing every day. So we have prescription strength doses, which are what I give my patients is 50,000 units a week. That's to like ramp them up to normal uh -huh. levels. And then we try to titrate them, you know, across. So my patients will need four to 10,000 a day typically. And it takes the full trial and error to get them to where we can stabilize them. You can usually do up to 4,000 international units per day without worries of toxicity. The thing okay. with vitamin D is you can become toxic if you take too much for too long. So you really need to stay on top of it, especially if you're doing those prescription strength doses. Mm, okay. So vitamin D is one. Number two, great studies on a very particular type of collagen called Fortibone. And Fortibone was studied in osteoporotic 65 plus year old women and showed improvement in bone density versus placebo. Can you tell us what is Fortibone collagen? So it's a very specific bioactive bovine. It's animal-derived collagen. Okay. And I don't know if other collagens would do it. This is the one they studied, and it mm. showed that it helped. They didn't look at this collagen versus that and that and that. So I can't say other forms of collagen would not do this as well. Sure. But I definitely can say this one. So for my patients who are coming in with osteopenia, osteoporosis, this is what I'm recommending. And what about magnesium? Okay. Mag's an electrolyte, and electrolytes fluctuate day to day to day. It's not like vitamin D where it's a fat-soluble volume, so we can like kind of get an idea of where you've been running for weeks. I can drop your mag tomorrow, talk to you tomorrow, get you back down to zero, because we're constantly excreting it, all right? But so there's mag for people who are chronically deficient if you're not getting enough in your diet per day, okay? And that's just different types of mag to raise your blood level up higher. Certain mags stay in the gut and induce diarrhea. That's milk of magnesia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's why that works. Other forms of mag get into the blood, well absorbed, get into the bloodstream, but also cross the blood brain barrier really well. 
So I'm often recommending magnesium L3 and 8 for my patients with brain fog, with SSRI resistant depression, if they're racing thoughts at night, you know, help with sleep, anything like getting the brain kind of back on track. Mag L3 and 8 is my go-to. If their brain's fine, but they're just really running low usually, then mag glycinate's really a good one for that. Um, and mag oxide tends to make you go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many different types of magnesium and I think- And they work differently. And I want to warn my listeners, in my opinion, you just have to be so careful of any supplementation and especially buying them from any source other than directly from your doctor and what they're suggesting to you. If, if you're buying things on Amazon, listen, your girl loves Amazon. I'm prime all the way, but you've got to be so careful. I've heard so many horror stories. I've had my own experiences where I've ordered something I thought I was ordering from the manufacturer. And for sure, I got something that was either expired or a counterfeit. And I just, mm -hmm. as much as I love Amazon, I wouldn't take that risk with supplements. Right. Right. It's tough. And, you know, with the third party testing, FDA will go and test every now and then and either it doesn't have anything in it or it's contaminated or so, yeah, you want to have third party testing from wherever you buy. So like our supplements are, we test at the manufacturer. So, you know, I have different suppliers for different things that I have. And then when they get to our distribution center, we test them again, mm. you know, because my name's on the line. Absolutely. I'm a physician and I don't want to hurt anyone. And so it's expensive, but it's worth it to me so I can sleep at night. And it's tough to find, yeah. you know, you have to really do your due diligence because, you know, yeah, oh, this one's $10 cheaper. I'll just grab that. Yeah. Now, I remember a study, you specifically, I was watching a TikTok that you, you got me really thinking about magnesium where you're talking about the a recent study, I feel like it was probably about a year ago that I saw this, where you were sharing information about the correlation between magnesium and weight loss and what profound impact it can have on women's hormone balance. So mag is what, like vitamin D is one of those kind of critical coenzymes where if you're deficient, things just don't work as well. Mm. especially these cascades of how we produce our hormones, how we're, they're released, how they bind to receptors. I mean, mag and calcium, we tend to not be too low in calcium very often because we have bones, you know, where it's stored and we can chew up bone to produce calcium. But mag isn't stored really well in our bodies. And so it, we're really dependent on taking it every day. Uh -huh. And if we're lacking, a lot of those enzymatic processes just don't work as efficiently as they should. Let me ask you this. What is it in our bodies that's causing a hot flash? What is the science behind a hot flash? So as far as we understand it, there is a thermostat, a thermoregulatory center in our brain that controls and, and how we generate heat in our bodies is, is called vasodilation. So the blood vessels close to the skin dilate. And basically the heat that is running through our blood vessels and capillaries gets released out through the skin. Okay. Okay. That's why we sweat. That's why, you know, and, and it's all like we have these sensors that are testing our body temperature. It's why we shiver when we're cold, you know. So when we're overheated, we release heat. That's why we sweat when we're working out. And so we shiver to try to generate heat internally. Yeah. And that center is very sensitive to estrogen depletion. And when our estrogen levels decline, we don't know why. There's no environmental reason. You know, there's no evolutionary advantage to this. <laughs> so it just gets broken. And so it does tend to stabilize that. It, it destabilizes that thermoregulatory center. And then the hot flashes and night sweats are the same thing, basically. Okay. 
So from my own personal experience at age 45, when I started testing, I always reported no symptoms. And I think partly that's because I just wasn't in tune with a lot of things in my body. Right. You know, right. and my doctor was like, you know, going through the list of symptoms, I'm like, nope, 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 none of those. But yet when I did have my levels tested, like my thyroid was not even functioning. Like there's so many things I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know. I'd forgotten what it felt like to feel good. And so I didn't realize I had negative symptoms. That's another thing. <laughs> you know, this is just clinical experience. My patient's coming back and saying, I didn't realize how bad I felt until yeah. I felt this good. I was so right. used to living like this, yeah. and especially like if it's not just hot flashes. You know, they're right. like, I didn't realize how bad my sleep was disrupted. I didn't realize the aches and pains, you know, the dry mouth, the dry eyes, the dry, dry skin. It just they're like dry skin, the itchiness. So, you know, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I have patients calling me and they're so mad. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, I feel great. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, I can't believe I let myself suffer this long. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I was just Interesting, huh? Yeah. We could just be we've been conditioned to just go, go, go. Don't worry about it. You've got the flu. You've still got to get up and take care of everybody yeah, else. You're fine. Yeah. Let's talk about the women who have had a hysterectomy at a young age, mm -hmm. does that yeah. automatically put them into menopause? And do they, should they be considering hormone support? So hysterectomy is removal of the uterus. If mm -hmm. they've lost their ovaries, that's a different story. So okay. let's talk about both. If you lose ovarian function, which whatever way, surgery, menopause, premature ovarian failure, below the age of 40, you are at very high risk for stroke and cardiovascular disease. It is malpractice if you are not offered hormone replacement therapy. Wow. You're still very, very risky after the age of 40. And then after 45, it's like, oh, you're just getting older. I'm like, okay, guys, we have to put titles on these things. Like, it's the time away from estrogen that is increasing your risk of these chronic diseases. Okay. And if you're choosing not to go on hormone therapy, I support you, but we need to hit everything else in your toolbox super hard. You know, if you're not going to get that benefit. And if you're not offering a woman younger than 40, I mean, her risk is astronomical for wow. early cardiovascular disease and stroke. So, yeah. And what about that 10% of our audience who struggles with PCOS? What does mm -hmm. perimenopause and menopause is, does that look different for them? So, Menopause, it's, I have a whole blog about this. It's harder to diagnose. So I have a whole side-by-side, -side, perimenopause versus PCOS and a checklist. And there's so many checks in the, same, in the same box. You know, yes, you can have this in peri and yes here and yes in PCOS. So it's almost like you're mimic, you know, a lot of perimenopause mimics a woman with PCOS. They're oligoovulatory, meaning they're, they're skipping ovulations regularly, which is raising some of their androgens. You're at, you know, acne and the hair and the whiskers and all the, the weight gain starts a lot faster. It's like, so for a PCOS woman, they're already there mm. <laughs> and they've been doing it for a long time. So wow. fortunately, it's not like it. But they've been on that track for increasing risk of disease and visceral fat and weight gain their whole lives, you know, and now their, their sisters are catching up with them. Mm. Okay. So that's interesting. And does menopause look different? I guess we should call it now post-menopause, right? Uh -huh. Post-menopause. Yeah. So when we're post-menopausal, is that different for the PCOS woman or does she find some relief? 
She might. Like her androgen levels will come down. A lot of my menopausal prior PCOS patients are like just kind of glad that the nightmare of the period stuff is over. And then we start having conversations around, okay, like you've kind of had these other risks your whole life. It's putting you at increased chronic risk this way. Let's talk about what we can do, nutrition, exercise, you know, to make sure we're covering our bases for you. Okay. Let's talk about nutrition exercise. But first, I want to talk about fiber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, if, if, if you're going to do one thing, that's my thing, I think. You should fight to get a minimum of 25 grams of fiber in your diet per day from food, okay? Average woman in the U.S. is getting 12, and it's probably mm. nothing you've ever tracked before or paid attention to. But those foods that are rich in fiber are also rich in multiple vitamins, minerals, nutrients, anthocyanins, phytoestrogens, all of it. High fiber diets are linked to decrease of cardiovascular risk, diabetes, stroke, visceral fat, <laughs> cholesterol, you know, and you're getting the biggest bang for your buck when you're choosing foods rich in these things. I supplement myself to get to 35 and plus. Mm. So I know I'm getting 25 a day with food, you know, mm-hmm. and then I'm supplementing to push the envelope a little bit. My gut can handle it. I've been doing it for a long time. Like a fiber powder? Yeah, so Galveston Diet has um, a fiber-based powder. We mix it in water, and you can drink it. It's citrusy flavored, so it's not one you'd want to put in a smoothie or any. Well, unless you like that, I don't. <laughs> but um, that's it, my <laughs> drink right okay, here. Yeah, yeah. And so the fiber is what feeds our gut microbiome. It is the prebiotic, and so your fiber should have soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber is the fiber that does not absorb water. It kind of precipitates out. It makes the gel. Kind of consistency too, yeah. and that's what's in like Metamucil. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the soluble fiber does dissolve, and that is the prebiotic with feeds the gut microbiome and keeps them happy and healthy. So, 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 so important. High fiber diets also you decrease the rate at which you absorb the sugars in your diet, so that your insulin levels stay a lot more stable, keeps you full longer, and it gives you a more of a sense of being satiated. Um, it also does wonders for going number two. And so, our, <laughs> you know, it bulks up the stool and it kind of helps with the transit of things through the colon. You will not find too many postmenopausal women who aren't incredibly frustrated with their weight. So I have to imagine, doctor, that you've got women coming to you saying like, OK, we've tried all the things. Give me Ozempic. Give me the semaglutide. So talk to us about that. I think that Ozempic can be a really, or Ozempic and those, that class of medications, sure. I don't want to single out Ozempic, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you know, the incretins can be a really important tool in someone's toolkit, especially if you've dealt with being obese. Obese is defined as excessive, you know, visceral fat, especially your whole life and you've done everything. First of all, I tell them I believe them, you know, and that everything, every medication, including hormone therapy, there is a risk benefit ratio. And- mm-hmm. If the risk of you carrying this around at this age is going to hasten your life or your chronic illness, Ozempic may keep you out of that. But things to remember about Ozempic, we don't have a lot of long-term data outside of diabetes. We really, really are really, really focused on not losing too much muscle through the weight loss process. Okay. You must focus on getting your protein. Not everyone is going to tolerate it. Yeah. Okay. It's not an easy medication to take. It's very, very, very expensive, but it could save your life. Yeah. So, you know, I go into it with love. I go into it with facts. I go into it. I don't think it's a miracle, 
It can be a very important tool. It is not for everyone. I don't think it's great for cosmetic weight loss. Mm. You know, the girl who always wants to be a size zero. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of like deep discussion around muscle mass and we're not using weight and BMI anymore to just, you know, to, to talk about your risk of chronic disease. We should not be doing that. Yeah. Medicine has taken a step back from that. Hopefully everyone's getting on board with it. I'm fortunate in my office, I have machines that measure muscle mass and visceral fat. We have those conversations. And I've been able to tell women who've been told they were obese their whole lives that they, they're fine. They have normal amounts of fat and lots and lots of muscle and they're healthy. That's great. And they just cry and cry and cry. Oh, that's amazing. Talk to me about your new book. Oh, okay. So it's called The New Menopause. You know, the conversation I started having on social media and where everything blew up was about nutrition and exercise and menopause and weight loss and all the things. But, you know, as these followers were asking me all these questions, what about this? What about hormone therapy? I just, I, I go into it with curiosity. I'm like, how can 95,000 people ask me about frozen shoulder? It's mm. got to be something, you know? And then I started looking through the orthopedic research and I'm like, oh my God, there are studies showing that the lack of estrogen leads to frozen shoulder. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so my book is a medical encyclopedia of menopause. It is something you would hand to a 35-year-old, get ready. It is something you will hand to your loved one, understand me. It was something to provide a resource for you with organ system by organ system breaking it down. What's going on in my brain? What's going on in my bones? What's going on in my joints? What's going on in my bladder? What's going on in my vagina? You know, and what can I do about it? Hormones, no hormones, nutrition, exercise, you know, what does the data say to help me live my best life so that I'm not plagued for as little as possible with you know, being not being able to think or not being able to move and being able to enjoy who I am. What an incredible resource. Is it available on pre-order yet? It's available on pre-order everywhere you buy books. It's called The New Menopause by me, Mary Claire Haver. <laughs> I love it. You just said something. You said every 35-year-old woman needs this book. And I remember when I was in my early 40s and people were reading books on menopause and hormones and, and me thinking like, I don't need to know any of this. Like, it doesn't relate to me. Gosh, I wish I had started to understand this better. So why age 35? I think that's the, the precipice for most of us. Now, certainly there are women who will go through sooner and be in perimenopause at 35. But I think for most women, it's a good age to start getting ahead of this to, you know, I get so many questions if I would, or, you know, comments, if I would have known, I would have been focusing on fiber, I would have been lifting weights, I would have been, mm -hmm. you know, and just stopping this ridiculous caloric restriction and, and tons of aerobic activities, you know, I would have focused on different things. And so it's my plea to them, the muscle mass you have at 35 is you're going to be the most you're ever going to have in your life for most of us. And if you can just hang on to that and try to build a little bit more, it's going to serve you. It's going to keep you out of diabetes. It's going to help you maintain your basal metabolic rate. I was like you. I was working out. I was working out with you online. Really? <laughs> That's crazy. Yes. Oh my God, Shalene Johnson. That's so, so um, yeah, I'm fangirling a little bit right now. So <laughs> I was, you know, and I thought because I was thin and doing lots of aerobics, which was good, is better than being on the couch, but that that was going to protect me from all these things. I didn't yeah. know. And that's that's what I want to teach the younger generation. Strong over thin, nutrition over calories. That's what you need to focus on. That's so great. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Let's, I, we can't say tweet anymore, right? What do, what do you say instead of tweeting it now? Exit? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Words to live by. Thank you for being our Wonder Woman. Thank you for being the voice of reason. Thank you for being so passionate about this because 
I mean, you're reaching millions and millions of people and it's making a huge difference. And thank you, of course, for being here on The Shaleen Show. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I mentioned, all of the links to her books, the fiber protein that she talked about, a few of the other supplements, the magnesium that I take, I will link to that below in our show notes. P.S. The magnesium that I take was prescribed by my doctor and it has all seven forms. Remember when she was talking about all the different forms of magnesium? The one that I take has all seven forms. And as she mentioned in this episode, yeah, their magnesium can change. So even though there's a dosage on the bottle, this is my personal recommendation. I'm not a doctor. I just play one here on the podcast. My personal recommendation would be to pay attention to your body. Like start with one capsule, figure out how that makes you feel. And, you know, you can titrate up or titrate down, but go slow. Bioptimizer also happens to be a sponsor of The Shaleen Show. So you do get a discount when you use the link that I put in the show description. I hope that you love it. I know that it has changed the game for me. I started taking it for bone density, but it helps sleep. It helps mood. It helps, well, all things we mentioned in this episode. And again, you want to check with your physician to make sure that any supplement that you're taking doesn't counteract or have any impact on any other medications you might be taking. Always check with your physician first. All those links will be in our show notes. As always, I want to thank you for being a subscriber to The Shaleen Show. I want to thank you for writing a review if you're listening on your favorite audio podcast. And when it comes to your hormone health, I'd love to know what topic would you like me to do a deep dive on next. Hey, I love you. I mean it. And I'll talk to you soon.